not become friends with this world because if I'm a friend of the world then I'm an enemy of God and now what you realize is that God invites all of us into this tension of following Jesus in the midst of a system that is not driven or designed by the very principles that God holds and this is what nobody wants to hear about when it comes to Christianity isn't that the truth that tension is real It's really hard to follow God in the broken world we live in. You're constantly being pulled in two directions. So today, Pastor Daniel invites you to take an honest look at the direction your heart is leaning. You'll be challenged to consider if you're trusting in yourself or trusting in God, especially as it relates to the conflicts in your life. He'll help you understand that humility is the cure for what divides people. Now, here's Pastor Daniel in James chapter 4 as he continues his message, Humility and Pride. When you walk with Jesus, we still have these, all these desires that are going on. We're not even conscious of some of them. Some of them, you know, we, we shroud them in religious language, but it's still just straight self-centeredness, Right? What I have found is the only thing that truly fulfills us is not us getting what we want. It's God fulfilling his purposes in our lives. And I'm just not saying that because I'm a pastor. That has been my life experience. My life experience has been one of getting everything that I always thought I wanted, only to find that all the things that I got that weren't God's will were completely unfulfilling. No amount of party and no amount of success, none of it truly fulfills the deepest parts of who we are. And that's why when you get there, you're like, this actually doesn't get it done for me. The only thing that will truly fulfill you is God's perfect plan for your life. And I'm here to tell you, when you say, God, I want your perfect plan for my life, then you have to abandon your own chosen outcomes of what you think your perfect plan is for your life is. So I don't think it's wrong to say, hey, this is my five-year plan, as long as you write your five-year plan in pencil, subordinate to the will of God. Like, have goals and dreams, and then end it with, if the Lord wills. Because if not, you end up doing all sorts of things, creating all sorts of issues, but it's really just selfishness, self-centeredness. Now, from there, so we see the, the source of conflict which is our own inordinate desires that are within us, that are self-centered, right? Then look at what happens next, because now we see like once this thing starts to blossom in our lives, this life of seeking after self-centered pleasure, look what he says next. So this is verse, chapter four, verse four of the book of James. Adulterers and adulteresses. Ouch. There's no beloved brethren right now. Just calling us out. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scriptures says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, 
But he gives more grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Now, here's what I would say. What this teaches us is that you and I, we need to choose your friends wisely. You need to choose your friends wisely, and so do I. I always love that phrase. I tell my kids it all the time. You show me your friends, I'll show you your future. Someone along the way, maybe it was Norman Vincent Peale, said, you are the sum total, the average of your five closest friends. That's how it works. Because we are influenced by the people around us. And, the, and, our, and our closest friends have tremendous influence on our lives. They're the ones who give us advice when things are challenging. When we have tough decisions, those are the people you ask. And whatever your, your five closest friends are, that is going to be the, the average of the best advice you get. And here he's saying that for you and I, James is saying that you can make friendship with the world or you can make friendship with God, but you can't have both. Now, don't miss, I made a joke, adulterers and adulteresses, that's kind of nasty, isn't it? And all through the scriptures, we think of the idea of adultery as uh, somebody who has a relationship outside of the covenant of marriage, but it is used in a spiritual sense for people who are cheating on God. They believe in God, but they actually are having relationships with other gods. And it's all through the prophets where the, where the idea is it's a spiritual adultery that's going on. And James is using the exact same idea because what he's saying is that, listen, he's saying, if you are a friend of the world, then you're an enemy of God. Now, the idea of the world here, because we know that John 3.16, for God so loves the world, is not talking about the mass of humanity. The world is a system of life that is designed not around the glory of God and the blessings of humanity, but is designed around life in rebellion against God. So it's almost like you have sin nature that now becomes codified and systemized in society. That's the world. And really what he's saying is that you, if you want to be a friend of this world and the system as it exists, because in case you haven't noticed, our, the system in which we live in is not built on God's glory and the betterment of people. It is built on self-centeredness. The system isn't the problem. The people in the system's the problem, which is what we're seeing here again. Like it's not other people. It's like my heart and my selfishness is the problem. Your heart and your selfishness is the problem. Now, when your selfish heart and my selfish heart and a society of selfish hearts gets together, it creates a system that now the system is broken. And so the world is a system of a culture that exists based on the lies that we believe that now we can either choose to make friends with so that we accomplish the things we hope to in this world, but he's saying you can't have both. You can't really live in both. Now, isn't that nasty? Because it's a hard teaching and it opens up a huge can of worms for each one of us about who we are, how we live, and what does it mean to follow Jesus because there's no culture in all, in all of human history that isn't a system that is not designed on glorifying God and blessing other people. So it's not like it's just us. It's like in, if you were born in Mesopotamia back in the day, if you were part of the Greek empire, the Roman empire, if you live across the globe, if you live in the United States of America, wherever you are, there is a world system that is not designed to glorify God and bless other people. 
And we are all living in the midst of it. So then the question becomes for us, how do we live within this and not cozy up in friendship to it? And this is the one of the aspects of the, there's a narrow gate, there's a difficult way. If you find it and it leads to life. Jesus is that narrow gate. But then choosing to follow Jesus where the rubber meets the road where we all live, that's also a narrow gate. And James leaves no room. There's no gray area here. Because look what he says. I mean, it's like, whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Ouch. There's like, it's like, you're either a Hatfield or you're a McCoy. If you know the reference. You know what I mean? You're either, you know, in this camp or in this camp. Just the way that it is. And, and there's no wiggle. Now, the apostle John, the apostle whom Jesus loves, says it this way. This is in the first John 2, 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. For anyone who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it's of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Now, don't miss how John uses what is in the world the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Again, that word lust, passionate, inordinate desires. The desires of the body, the desires, you know, uh, the lust of the flesh, which is all your bodily needs that are now not under the authority of Jesus. The lust of the eyes, which always speaks of covetousness and envy because the eyes, predominantly people experience the world predominantly through eyes. Now, obviously, if people don't have their sight, then the other senses are heightened in order for them to be able to experience the world. But for people who can see, the eyes are the gate through which we experience the world. Covetousness is found through the eyes. Envious, it happens through the eyes. And then the pride of life, which is now our self-styled views of what our life's supposed to be. All of that is in the world. And John says... That if you love all this stuff, then you don't know the love of the Father. Now, isn't this a t- it's a challenging teaching, isn't it? Because right now, everyone's asking themselves, well, what, the, what am I supposed to do, Fusco? And I'll be honest, as I'm reading this, I'm asking the same exact question. Lord, what will you have me do? And that's why here at Crossroads, we always talk about simply responding to Jesus. Because in this moment, in the message, I'm living in this world... But how do I not love this world that's passing away? How do I not love this world? Because if I love this world, then the love of God is not in me. How do I not become friends with this world? Because if I'm a friend of the world, then I'm an enemy of God. And now what you realize is that God invites all of us into this tension of following Jesus in the midst of a system that is not driven or designed by the very principles that God holds. And this is what nobody wants to hear about when it comes to Christianity. Everybody wants to hear, man, listen, just live your life. Just just do your thing. You do you. You'll get to heaven when you die. And Jesus is like, that is actually not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is 
walking with Jesus now and on into eternity. And because we do not value what everyone else values, we once again find ourselves being distinctively Christian. Where all of a sudden now, we live here and we, and we have jobs and houses and cars, but the whole reasoning for all that we have and the way we steward this life is now being changed because God is inviting us into something different. And this is where discipleship happens. And right now, I'm, my hope is that all of us are feeling that tension. And I, I really, I, I don't want to resolve the tension for us because I don't think we're supposed to have the tension resolved. I think God is inviting us to say, God, how do you want to change my life now? God, how do you want me to be more like Jesus in the midst of this? Now, what's beautiful is we're going to get to the the cure in a moment. But I love the end of this little section I read, verses five and six, say some very powerful things. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? Now the idea of the jealousy of God, right? He's saying that if you have the spirit of God, there is a yearning of the spirit for us not to be friends of the world, not to love the world and the things of the world, but to be friends with God and to love the things of God. And the spirit of God is jealous within us. Now, some people hear about the jealousy of God and they really struggle with it. I remember watching an interview with uh, Oprah Winfrey and she was talking about her upbringing in the church and she really stumbled on this idea that God is a jealous God. And Oprah made the mistake that all of us make when we think about jealousy is you equate the jealousy of God with like a bad Hallmark movie. Now, I know none of you have ever watched those Hallmark movies made for, for the women, but the husbands get locked into them and they like them too. They just won't say anything. <laughs> Isn't it the truth? Every husband's like, yep. I didn't want to watch it, but then I kind of liked it, you know? But they don't, <laughs> all the husbands are like, Fusco. But here's the deal. It's like we have this tendency to think of the jealousy of God as that God is insecure and self-centered and flies off the handle. The jealousy of God is God's absolute love for humanity and his jealousy for us is the highest virtue in the world because only when we are devoted and in covenant with him does God's perfect plans unfold in our lives? So human jealousy, which leads to rage and crimes of passion, is always rooted in pride and insecurity. God is not insecure. There's no more secure person in the world than the Almighty. And God is not prideful. God's desire for us is only good, only perfect, so God's jealousy for you is the highest virtue because he wants you to experience all that he is for you in Christ on this side of eternity. And if you're here today and you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, the spirit of God dwells within you and the spirit of God has a holy jealousy for the best for you. It's why when you're a follower of Jesus and you start to love the things of the world, you start getting that, you get that conviction, you get that check in your spirit. 
that God pause. Now, if you keep running over that God pause, your sinfulness dulls the senses. It's like when you do something wrong the first time you feel really bad, the second time you feel less bad. By the time you do it five times, you don't feel anything. Because the sinfulness is dampening our sensitivity to the Spirit's invitations. And so the Spirit of God, part of his ministry within the souls, within the depths of who we are, is to invite us to not love the world, but to love the things of God. To not give in to the desires in an inordinate way, but to let those desires be under the authority of Jesus. And, all, and then he says, but he gives more grace. Now, I love that. Because he's acknowledging the fact that we all sin and fall short of the goal. And even though we fail and we give in to those desires and we, and we begin to have the wrong affections, the wrong loves, the wrong friendships, we choose the wrong friends, God gives more grace. Therefore, God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. And that's a quotation from Proverbs chapter 3. Verse 34, God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. So beautiful. I want you to write that down. Proverbs 3, 34. Because right here now we see the cure for all the conflict. God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And what we're going to see now is that humility leads to exaltation. The cure is humility. Humility leads to exaltation. Listen to what it says. Pick up in verse six. God gives great, resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Mourning and your joy. Turn your mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of God and he will what? Lift you up. So, so you want the cure for conflict? It's humility. Humility is the cure for all that divides people. Now someone say, well, Fusco, what's humility? I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking about yourself less. Really, it's when a person puts their faith and trust in Jesus, by calling Jesus Lord, you're acknowledging that you are not the center of your solar system. And that's why the ultimate, the only saving act of humility is putting your faith and trust in Jesus. And I, I want to speak for a moment to those of you who are not yet followers of Jesus. You need to put your faith and trust in Jesus because Jesus died the death that we deserve for the mistakes that we make. I remember when I was learning about Jesus, when I, when I was older, I was aware of my own wretchedness, and I was like, wait, so he died. I, I, had, I had seen at church, like the crucifix at the back of the church building, and Jesus was on there, and I'm like, man, that dude needs a bowl of pasta. He's so skinny, I didn't know the whole story about Jesus fasting for 40 days, you know, all that stuff. And so, but he was gone on, on a cross at the back of a church. And I remember just being like, I don't know, like, why? And I didn't realize what it meant. Jesus died in your place. And the ultimate act of humility is when we bow the knee to Jesus and we say, you are the Lord and I am not. You are the center and I am not. It's the only saving act of humility, putting your faith and trust in Jesus. 
Now, the reason someone won't put their faith and trust in Jesus is because they want to retain their faith and trust in themselves. That's where it's right where it sits. It's like, it's either I'm going to trust in myself or I'm going to trust in God. And we, we've been raised in a society that says, because it's the world, it's the world system that says, you don't need to trust in God, you trust in you. Which is the most horrific advice. It's not good for this life or the next life. But what's beautiful is, although the only act of humility that is saving is putting your faith and trust in Jesus, I'm here to tell you the only act of humility that is transformational is also choosing to put your faith and trust in Jesus after you get saved. And I think for the vast majority of us who are already followers of Jesus, it's easy to put your faith and trust in Jesus to be saved, but then we stop putting our faith and trust in Jesus to be sanctified, to be set apart for him. We get used to, I believe in Jesus, but where the rubber meets the road in our lives, we are not trusting in Jesus, we're trusting in ourselves. We're trusting in our decisions. But really, the Christian life is we believe in Jesus once unto salvation, and then every single moment of every single day, we choose to trust Jesus unto sanctification. Where Jesus is inviting us to saying, listen, I want you to be different. That's why James, writing to the church, says, this is to the church. He's saying, therefore, see that verse seven? Now, when you see the word therefore, what do you say? What's it there for? I'm gonna remind us of this forever, as long as I'm here. And when I go home to be with Jesus, you put a little thing on the casket that says, what's it there for? You know? Because it's like, like when you see the word therefore in the Bible, it's a conclusion. Because God gives, resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble, therefore, submit to God. But he's telling the church, submit to God. I'm saying crossroads, submit to God. Bow the knee to Jesus afresh today. Simply respond to him. In a world where there's so much strife, we need to surrender afresh to God and we need to resist the devil. And when you resist the devil, he will flee from you. What that means is that we have a responsibility. As we submit to God, we resist the devil and the devil's job is simply to be the cheerleader to stir up these desires for pleasure that war in our members. He's just like, go ahead, you do it. It's gonna be fun and everyone's gonna have fun and it's gonna be so cool and then once you do it, then he condemns you for it for the rest of your life. I like to tell people that we, there's a lot of talk about toxic friendships today. Satan is the ultimate toxic friendship. He encourages you to do what you shouldn't do, and then he makes fun of you for doing it for the rest of your life. And we all know what that's like because there's been times when we do something that we shouldn't do, we don't want to do it. Satan comes like, oh yeah, you're going to want that. That's so good. I mean, listen, I know you haven't drank in 20 years, but what's a little wine going to do? I know you don't hang out with those people anymore and you got your life together and then now you're clean and sober, but it's not going to be bad if you go hang out with them on a Friday night. Jesus is real. As hard as this message may have been to hear, you can't get away from the truth that it's God's way that leads to life. That's what he wants for you. Pastor Daniel shared that it takes faith and trust to be saved, but they're also needed to become more and more like Jesus. This is an ongoing process. Every day holds a new opportunity for you to resist the devil and give yourself over to God, letting him take the lead. 
Jesus is inviting you to take the downward path of humility, and he's there to help you along the way. Hey, everybody, Pastor Daniel here. I realize that there are many of you, you're not a born-again follower of Jesus. You've never put your faith and trust in Jesus. But as you've been listening, you've been saying to yourself, I want to begin to follow Jesus. I want to help you do that right now. We're going to pray a simple prayer that just acknowledges who Jesus is in your life. Pray this prayer with me. Say, Jesus, I'm giving you my life. Thank you for saving me. I believe in you, your life, your death on the cross, and your resurrection. Forgive me of my sins. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you who just received Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, I'm so excited for you. I want to help you take your next steps with him. So pull out your mobile phone, text the word SAVED to 51400, S-A-V-E-D to 51400. And my team will get in touch with you. We want to get some more resources in your hands to help you on this journey. Join us again here on Jesus is Real Radio when Pastor Daniel continues working through more practical insights into how God wants you to live. You'll learn that humility is also the cure for judgment. God doesn't want us to judge others. When humility is your starting point, you can give grace because you've messed up before too. We wish we had more time today, but we will have to pick up where we left off next time as Pastor Daniel continues teaching through this series, Where the Rubber Meets the Road. That's next time on Jesus Is Real Radio.